Good morning. Good to see you all. You're not going to remember all of these, but, but I want to give you, before we get started, uh, an overview of, of some of the principles that the, the Jewish Sanhedrin was expected to keep as we get into the, to the trials of Jesus. Uh, these are important because you'll find that the trials of Jesus were quite illegal. He should have been set free, never should have gone on, shouldn't have even begun as it did, and as it progressed, it was actually regressing breaking all kinds of laws. Uh, And so I want to give you a quick overview. I've got 20 points, which will take about 20 minutes. No, it won't. I'm just going to browse through these real quick just to give you, if you remember one or two of them, that's great. But number one, the Jewish laws and regulations, number one, our modern judicial system is based on them, believe it or not. Uh, The governing principle is that, quote, The Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin is to save life, not destroy it. You'll wonder, can that be in the trials of Jesus? But that is their their motto. Sanhedrin is to save life, not destroy it. Of the 71 members, there were 70 members of of the Sanhedrin and then the high priest presiding over it, so 71 men. A quorum was 23 members. They only needed 23. They were chosen because of their character. They were to be men of upstanding character. Number four, trials were to be held in the temple for the public to witness. They were not to be held in private. And you'll note that the trials of Jesus were in private. The accused, and in our case it's going to be Jesus, had the right of a public trial. That's what we have in our country. Had the right of a defense and must be convicted by two witnesses, no less than two. They had to agree. To deter against perjury, false witnesses were stoned to death. That way you couldn't just come forward and make up a story. Your life was on the line if you were lying. We'll see that two witnesses come against Jesus. Their stories don't come together. They should have been killed. Jesus should have been set free. Witnesses had to identify. If you're witnessing something and you're coming before the Sanhedrin, you had to identify the precise month, day, hour, and location of the crime. Accusers were to carry out the execution. So if you're going to accuse someone, it's your job to carry out the execution. That means less people are going to, to falsely accuse um, because they can't be lying. They can't be hypocrites. Execution is not to be carried out until the third day after the conviction, three days after the conviction. Wasn't true with Jesus. And there had to be fasting in between for those three days to seek the Lord to see if Uh, He might change our mind, change our our verdict. Self-incrimination was not sufficient for execution. In other words, you couldn't say, I'm guilty. Can't be executed on self-incrimination. Number 11, no criminal trial could be held at night or into the night. Remember when Jesus' trials were held? In the dead of night. A council could not initiate the charges. Charges had to come from the outside. The Sanhedrin could not concoct the charges. And yet that's what they did. Voting, when you vote on who's guilty and who's not, had to be done from the youngest to the oldest. That way the youngest in the, in the Sanhedrin wouldn't see the older, more mature men making their vote and they wouldn't be influenced by that. The youngest began the voting. Number 14, if unanimous, if the vote was unanimous in favor of execution, guess what? The prisoner was set free for lack of mercy. So somebody needs to 
if, if someone is, is guilty of sin, somebody's got to say he's innocent just so we don't let this guy go free. Number 15, if guilty, conviction took place three days later with a herald going before them or a, an announcer on a megaphone, this man is guilty, dead man walking as it were. Number 16, three days later, guilt to innocence could occur. So if you were pronounced guilty, three days later, you could be seen as innocent, announced innocent, but not vice versa. You couldn't be announced innocent and then later held guilty. It shows that the Sanhedrin was there to save life, not destroy it. Before a stoning or any kind of, and that's the way that the Jews had their their capital punishment was by stoning. Of course, we know Jesus was crucified because he was handed over to the Romans. That was their capital punishment. But Jews, three, before stoning, would give a stupefying drink to the accused to get them drunk, essentially, so that they wouldn't feel the great pain of the stoning. Of course, stupefying drink was offered to Jesus on the cross. He wouldn't take it. The property of the executed criminal went to family and heirs. When, uh, what did Jesus' property go to? Those at the base of the cross throwing dice. The system was not only fair, but extremely merciful. And finally, Jesus was not charged, never formally charged, formally charged, had no defense. He was tried at night. He was executed on the same day, and he was cross-examined by the high priest, all of which was illegal. That didn't stop him, though. Today I have my Harmony of the Gospels. It's not my normal big black book. It's the same Bible, but it has all four gospel accounts next to each other. I'm going to break out my great big Bible here. Great big Bible with big lettering for blind people. Well, uh, Todd stumbled through last week. He was having trouble seeing, and I said, there's a big print Bible up there. He said, thank you. It's good to know that now. So we are, we begin tonight, today, it's not yet, not yet, in um, Luke chapter 22, verse 54. But while you're there, I want you to go to John's gospel. I'm in John's gospel, chapter 18. It's one gospel to the right. I have the distinct advantage of having a harmony of the gospels with me, so I see it all on one page. Uh, you'll have to flip if you want to keep up, and I, but I will show you where I am each time. Luke 2254 simply says, having arrested Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following it at a distance. Luke is, is the summary model here. Uh, what we learned is that when Jesus was arrested that night in the garden, and we left off last week with Judas Iscariot coming upon the scene uh, with the crowd, uh, the crowd of Roman soldiers and Jews. There's clubs. Uh, they were ready and torches. They were ready for a war. And they arrested Jesus without incident. The first trial actually is given to us by John in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 13. It says, And they led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was indeed the high priest. Annas was appointed high priest uh, around A.D. 6 and was deposed in 15. Uh, He was a wicked man. And you you might need to know that Annas is essentially the godfather. He's the godfather in Jerusalem. He runs the whole scheme. The entire racket is run by Annas. And Jesus has disrupted Annas' business at least twice. 
At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus came in in John chapter 2 and wrecked it all in the temple. Of course, Annas is in there. He's, they're bilking people. You had to bring a, uh, a lamb for a, at the Passover, for instance. But everyone knew that if you brought a lamb, Annas' group was taught to say, that lamb isn't good enough. You need to buy one of our lambs. And it was done at an exorbitant price. And so he made lots of money because millions, up to millions of pilgrims would come in three times a year for the three annual feasts. Annas made millions on this. Jesus, however, went in at the first of his ministry, destroyed all of that, and then at the end of his ministry, just a couple of days prior in our context, has done it again. Annas wants blood. He is the godfather running his racket. So they take him to Annas first. It's probably going to act, at least in their minds, and mind you, it's late at night. They rested Jesus. They had had the Passover meal. Jesus had taught them, and we get the longer version in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and even 17, and then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus prayed, and he asked the disciples when they fell asleep, can you not pray with me for what? For an hour? And then he went back two more times to pray, and we assume it was an hour each time. He was praying the same thing. Uh, So it could have been very late into the night. It's between the the hours of 1 and 3 a.m., that Jesus is arrested, and he is immediately taken, and that's nighttime by all standards, no matter if you live in Israel or here. It's night. It's illegal to have Jesus arrested and taken, and he's taken to Annas first, to the Godfather, acting somewhat like it's an arraignment uh, or a grand jury here. We need a charge against Jesus, and we have none. Verse 14, now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Uh, Caiaphas had done this. We read about it in John chapter 11 where Caiaphas uh, seems to be speaking this brilliant prophecy, but he's really just saying we need to kill this Jesus for the good of the nation. And he was right, but in a, in a, in a roundabout way, right? Not the, not the way he thought it should be. And John says in verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. We'll later learn that this other disciple, we believe, is John, the brother of James, one of the sons of Zebedee. It says, now that disciple was known to the high priest. In other words, Annas knew uh, John and his family. We don't know how, but he knew John. John was acceptable to them. And they're coming, and where they're coming, the house of Annas is going to be the same house as the house of Caiaphas. That's how you did back then. When you married, and Caiaphas is the son-in-law of Annas, when you married, another house, a little section was built onto the house, and families lived together. This is a high-ranking family. In fact, Annas had five sons and a son-in-law who were high priests. You wonder, how were they? Was it like an election Because if you know anything about anything in the Old Testament, high priests were appointed for life. But they were so wicked, and their office became uh, available to the highest bidder that they were deposed back and forth. And Annas was one of those who had been deposed. But Annas still held all the power, all the power, and so they come to him first. Peter comes in. John has made their way in. They've come into the gate of this home in this private residence in Jerusalem. Verse 16, but Peter was standing at the door outside. John's come in, and John's going to let Peter in. And while he's at the door, it says, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. Now, Peter, mind you, just a brief time before has wielded a sword, has come at one of the, the Roman soldiers whom we know was a slave of the high priest, and that's where we are. We're in the courtyard of the high priest, and he's slashing a sword around. Hit the guy in the head, probably glanced off his helmet, cut his ear off. Jesus healed him. So Peter's already made himself known. 
even though he might not have been otherwise known to these Roman soldiers. And now he's coming in late at night to this courtyard. Verse 17, it says, A slave girl, therefore, who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Remember what Jesus has told Peter back in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, 32, 33, and 34. Peter said, If all fall away, Jesus, not me. I'm with you. I got your back. That's what men like to say. I got your back. Used to have a bunch of friends that said that to me. Yeah, they had my back enough to just stab me over and over and over again. I'm a little, little weary of that, but I know what it means, as do you, especially if you're in battle. You have your, your fellow soldiers back. Well, that's what Peter was telling Jesus. Now, verse 17 would be better if he was noticed by a big, burly, I wish it said this, verse 17, and a big, burly, hairy, ugly-looking dude with long hair everywhere and swords and, and brass knuckles said, hey, I know you. But it's a little girl. A slave girl at the door said to Peter, you're not one of this man's disciples, are you? No, I am not. Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. In fact, in spite of the fact that Peter said, I would not. And it stops there. It's left alone. Now, the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. Early spring, the evening, it's cool outside. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. So imagine a dark night. It's cold. There's a fire. He's in the courtyard of the priest, and my guess is that the people in this courtyard are the same people that came to arrest Jesus. Who else is hanging around that night, up at this hour, in the courtyard of the high priest? While the fire is warming Peter, he's going to be recognized again. But right now, the scene goes back to Annas' house inside in verse 19. The high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. In other words, Annas said, Jesus, tell me about your disciples, those guys you're hanging with, and tell me about your teaching. This is illegal. The high priest cannot ask these questions, and the accused cannot or at least is free from implicating himself. And Jesus knows this. So Jesus answered him. What we think is Jesus maybe being evasive. Jesus perhaps is probably trying to save Annas from committing an illegal act. He said to him, I have spoken openly in the, to the world. I always taught in the synagogues. These are public places. And in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? As if to say, you know this is illegal. Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. It's the witnesses that are supposed to come and bring charges. No one did. But in order to get Jesus out of their lives and out of Israel, we've got to break the rules. And so they did. Now, this, no doubt, would have infuriated Annas. Verse 23, or I'm sorry, John 18, 22. And when Jesus had said this, one of the officers standing gave Jesus a blow, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Hit him. Struck our Lord. Innocent man that he was. You think that's legal? That was not legal then, not legal here, not legal then, not legal now. You don't get the... The, uh, the answer you want, of course, Jesus is a, like a lamb going to the slaughter. We read about that in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. There's another great man in the Bible that got slapped in the face who did not act like Jesus did. Do you remember him? 
Was it Acts chapter 23, 24, 22, 23? Paul. Paul starts talking. He's been summoned by the high priest. He starts talking. Someone reaches over and slaps him, and he does what you and I would do. God's going to get you, you whitewashed sepulcher. Now, that's what I would do. Not Jesus. They slug him. He knows it's illegal. In verse 23, Jesus answered him, if I've spoken wrongly, bear witness to the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas is not going to get anything from Jesus, and he knows it, so it's what he does. Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now back in Luke, in Luke 22, 54, all Luke tells us is that they took him to the high priest. It doesn't say where it was, whether it was Annas or Caiaphas. Mark chapter 14 says that it was Caiaphas, and Matthew chapter 26 says that it was the high priest. So I'm putting it all together as best I can with the harmony of the, again, the, harmony of the Gospels is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of the Gospels next to each other, and you see how each Gospel writer presented their case for God in flesh. Mark says, uh, Mark 14, 53, and they led him away to the high priest. And note this, and all the chief priests... And the elders of the scribes were gathered together. That means they didn't have a quorum. All of them were there. Think about that. All 71 men, not in the middle of the night, but these are the wee hours of the morning now. All of them are gathered because Jesus is so dangerous in their sight. We will all get up out of bed on a cold night and gather together. Um, from here, we learn from, from, from uh, Luke that Peter was following at a distance. Mark adds more. In Mark 14, 54, it says, And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers. John's already told us this, and warming himself at the fire. Peter, when Jesus was before Annas, and I believe Annas and Caiaphas live in the same complex, courtyard of the high priest, they're just going to share the courtyard. Peter has already denied him once during the trial before Annas, and is clueless to it. In Mark 14, 55, while he's warming himself by the fire, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus. So you see the scene goes back and forth between Peter and what's going on indoors. So I want you to notice it. Just try to picture it, I should say. It's dark. You're at a complex where, where men and their families live and a courtyard and all of these people, probably all those that showed up to arrest Jesus, are outside milling around and there's a trial going on inside. The trial of our Lord Jesus. And so, as this goes, Peter is out here, and now the scene shifts. And it says here again in Mark 14, 55, they kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. A trial at night, and they keep on trying. But if you're going to try to put an innocent man down, joke's on you. So that they could put him to death. That's what it's, they've been trying to do since the beginning of his ministry. But note there in verse, Mark 14, 55, but they were not finding anything. That's what we would expect. Verse 56, for many were giving false testimony against him, that is Jesus, and yet their testimony was not consistent. Remember what I told you earlier? When witnesses come forward and they don't agree, they're stoned and the prisoner is set free. That doesn't happen. Our Lord should have gone scot-free from this moment by the Jews' own rule. Verse 57, I'm in Mark 14. And some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build it, I will build another made without hands. Now, Jesus said something like this 
In John chapter 2, verse 19, early in his ministry, he stood before the temple, and they were talking about how great the temple was, and Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. But John notes he was talking about the temple of his body. We know that Jesus wasn't pointing at it because that's not what he was talking about. Destroy this beautiful temple that it took 46 years to build right there. That's what John chapter 2 says, that it took 46 years to build. Destroy this and I'll rebuild it. He doesn't say about with hands or without hands. That's not the quote. They're adding to it and that's not what Jesus meant. He meant his body. Jesus was standing in front of the temple apparently and may have done this to his own bosom. Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And that's exactly what he did. When he was destroyed, he was raised in three days. John knew this in hindsight. But Mark 14, 59, after they made this claim, which was close to something Jesus said, but it says, and not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. No one had the same story. All you needed was two witnesses that said, I heard him say this verbatim. I heard him say the exact same thing. Two people, two witnesses, death. But that's not what they got. Because that's not what Jesus said. Now at this point, it says the high priest stood up, which is now going to accuse Jesus. There's no charge. We believe that there were three trials before the sunrise. I'm sorry, two, two trials before sunrise, and then a third one right at sunrise. The first one was with Annas. The second one appears to be a private meeting with Caiaphas. The third one is with the whole council gathered together right at daybreak, around 5 a.m., And then there'll be three more trials. They'll take him to Pontius Pilate. Pilate will ship him off to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas will ship him back to Pilate, and he'll be convicted. But these are the trials by the Jews. Mark 14, 60 says, And the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you make no answer? This high priest would be Caiaphas. Annas got nothing from Jesus. Do you make no answer? Apparently Jesus was just sitting there, standing there, stoic saying nothing, not arguing with all the false accusations. And you know, that's what we like to do. I say we like to do. If there's a bunch of people standing around trying to accuse you, it's hard to keep your mouth shut. Nuh-uh, not, uh. or you can be like Donald Trump, wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> Jesus just sat there like a sheep led to the slaughter who doesn't open his mouth. And the high priest is dumbfounded by this. Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Luke's gospel has Jesus saying, if I say this, or if I say that, you're not going to believe anything I say. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know that your your verdict is already a done deal in your minds. You're already going to do what you're going to do. There's no point in answering. So he keeps his mouth shut. But the high priest asked him, illegally, Jesus is supposed to have a defense lawyer. He's supposed to have witnesses that agree against him. He's supposed to be able to give his defense, and he's not allowed to implicate himself. And yet that's exactly what the high priest is setting him up to do. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Matthew's gospel in 26.63 says Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God. Puts him under oath. In other words, you can't remain silent after being put under this oath. I adjure you. I demand or command you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And there it is. That's what they wanted to know. 
You see, the Jews have nothing they can find against Jesus. That temple story that they brought together, they probably told a few false witnesses, some scoundrels, hey, uh, tell them about that that temple because that's going to concern Rome. They don't have any case. Jesus hasn't done anything, certainly nothing to deserve death. But if they can involve a rebellion of Jesus' words against Rome, they can bring the Romans into this problem. And the temple, although it's Jewish, is part of the Romans' problem. Because if the temple is in an uproar, that means the, the governor, who is Pontius Pilate in this case, he's not keeping law and order. He's in trouble. He has to keep peace in Jerusalem, all through Judea. So if we can show that Jesus is talking about destroying this temple and rebuilding it, that's going to concern Rome. If we can get Jesus to say he is the son of God, then we can go to the emperor and say, by the way, this guy doesn't think you're God, as the Roman emperors did. So, with Jesus saying nothing, the high priest puts him under oath. I adjure you, tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Mark says whether you are the Christ, the son of the blessed one. Son of God, blessed one, it's the same question. The Christ, by the way, is uh, a Greek title that's equivalent to the Hebrew word for Messiah. It means the anointed one, the anointed one. Uh, An anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach, and in Greek it's Christos. It's not Jesus' last name. Jesus doesn't have a last name. It comes from the family of Christ. He's Jesus of the land of Nazareth, And that would depict him as as other people named Jesus. His name was Yeshua or Joshua. Other people had that name. He's from Nazareth. And his designation is the Christ. You could easily just say Jesus, the Messiah. Are you that person? Because if you're going to say you're that person, then you are rebelling against Rome, and we can get you on that. In Matthew 26... Um, 64, Jesus said, you've said it yourself. Or you say, you say, which is to say, your understanding of who and what I am, well, that's just what you say. Yeah, it's a good question. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the living God? Uh, Yeah, well, you say. By your understanding of that, yeah, I am. In Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark and in Luke, Jesus says, I am. And if he said that in Hebrew, the words that will come out of his mouth would have been Yahweh. Isn't that what God told Moses his name was? Moses said, Lord, who will I tell them sent me? Who will I tell Pharaoh sent me when I go tell him the impossible task that you're putting my life in danger to do? I'm supposed to go before the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Who am I going to tell him sent me? And God said, tell them, I am sent you. See, that's God's personal name. I am Yahweh. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It means to be. (laughs) How about that for a name? The existing, the eternally existing one, the one that always is. He be. He was. He is. He will be. He is Yahweh. He is the eternal God. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Yahweh. You think that didn't hack these people off? No Jew said that word that I just said. No Jew said Yahweh. 
They believed that God's name was so holy their unclean lips could not say it. I like that at some level. But that's not for us. You see, we know God personally, by name. And we can call him by name. Did we not sing a song earlier today? Your great name? The great name of God is the eternally existing one, Yahweh. Yahweh became flesh and we call him Yeshua. It's the same God, my friends. Because there's only one God, isn't there? The same God in the beginning who created the heavens and the earth. The same God who became flesh, who lived our life and died our death. These men, full of hatred, the religious leaders are looking at him, pointing their bony finger. Are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And we don't see any wimpy answer by Jesus. I am. Yes. But he adds this. In Mark 14, 62. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Where's that? You see, that's a quote from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7. Stay with me. Let me give you the context. Daniel chapter 7 was written in 550 B.C. by Daniel himself who has been taken captive from the land of Israel, and he's in Babylon, called the Babylonian captivity. The exile of the Jews. They've been um, flushed from their land because they were so disobedient to God. Daniel gets visions from God, and God's vision tells Daniel, Daniel, there's going to be four major world empires, including the one you're living within right now, which was a Babylonian. Four major world empires, but a fifth empire is coming and it's going to topple all of those previous empires. It's, according to Daniel chapter 2, it's a little stone cut out of a mountain without hands that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And the parallel in Daniel 7 is the Son of Man. After those four empires have reigned, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the fifth kingdom is the kingdom of the Messiah. And Daniel sees this vision of the one like a son of man coming after those kingdoms, coming as the the one that topples those kingdoms. He sees one like a son of man approach God who is called the ancient of days. And to the son of man is given a kingdom that will endure forever, the fifth and final kingdom that will endure forever. Jesus is telling these men, I'm that guy. As if saying Yahweh wasn't enough if he spoke it in Hebrew, I am. In Greek, it's simply ego eimi. I am. Ego eimi. And you will see the Son of Man. That's what Jesus has called himself throughout the Gospels. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest was immediately converted and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ that day. No, it's not what happened. You see, according to Caiaphas, Caiaphas, by Caiaphas' system, no Messiah could ever come into town and proclaim himself the Messiah. If you said you're the Messiah, in Caiaphas' way, under his law, the Messiah was not allowed, no matter who he was or when he came. No Messiah could come in. Because Jesus is the Messiah. He said he was the Messiah. All of his ministry proves he's the Messiah. 
His ability to heal shows no one in the history of the world can do that and raise the dead. He's the Messiah. But Caiaphas had it arranged, no, I'll be in power until I die. No Messiah is coming in here. And so instead of just simply believing and saying, well, you know, the evidence does point to you. Let me ask you, where were you born? Bethlehem. Isn't that what the Bible says? Uh, Micah 5 verse 2 says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Yeah, that's where I was born. Are you from the line of David? Yep, from the line of David. You know my wife, my mother, Mary. You know her. You know where she's from. Got her genealogy right here on record. Well, and I see that you've healed the blind, made the deaf hear, caused the, the, the lame to walk. You've healed the lepers. You healed at least two dead people that we know of, and you sent your disciples out to do it. Well, it looks like everything factors in. You must be the Messiah. Tell that to any modern Jew or any Jew from that time on. They don't want to hear the truth. It's all right there, prophesied in their own scriptures. Caiaphas, first Mark 14, 63, tearing his clothes, which, by the way, was illegal for the high priest, according to Leviticus 10, 10 verse 6 and 21, 10. They're absolutely forbidden to tear their clothes. It's a way of showing how horrified you are. You know, some people today are so sensitive. Um, if, if tearing clothes was normal today, they, all their clothes would be torn all the time because they're offended at everything. And coming to church like this, people would just be naked all the time. You know, because they're just tearing the, oh, you just hear people ripping their clothes off all the time. Don't do that. High priest wasn't supposed to do it. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. Blasphemy means to slander. Someone could blaspheme you, they could blaspheme us, or, or, or God. To blaspheme God was to take his name and twist it, or use it in a curse word, a punchline. People do it all the time today. It's all funny and, and good. You know, we just kind of, the punchline, use God's name in vain. That's blasphemy. And the high priest is saying, you calling yourself the son of God, referring to yourself as the son of man, coming in the clouds? Blasphemy. You're slandering God, but only if it's not true. Because if it is true, it's not blasphemy, is it? No one's giving him the benefit of the doubt. And Jesus knew this going in. He's not surprised by it. In verse 65, Mark 14, 65, and some began to spit at him and blindfolded him and beat him with their fists and say to him, prophesy. My guess is at this point, they've released him to the soldiers, taking him to his holding cell where they will go get him the next morning for this, his trial before Pontius Pilate. And as they take him away, spit at him. That's an insult then as now. Blindfolded him. Put a bag over his head. I want you to imagine someone doing that to your dad, to your mom to your spouse, to your child, putting a bag over their head and beating them over the head and saying, ah, since you know everything, who was it that just hit you? I know you can't see. We know who that was, by the way. It was you. And it was me. You say, wait a minute, I wasn't there. I wouldn't have done that. Oh, yes, you would have. Jesus is going through what he's going through. Because of our sin. Because of what we've done. I've always been angry at that. Moved to tears, even. 
This is maybe the first time I've preached it where I'm not moved to tears because I'm so convicted that it's me. I always thought, if you do that to my dad or you do my mom or someone I love, I'm going to get you. I'm going to hurt you. And to do this to my Lord, if I can find you people in the gates of hell, I'm going to get you. But it's me. As they beat our innocent Lord and mock him. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Scene shifts over to the courtyard with our fear, fearless Peter by a fire. He's already denied Jesus once. Luke picks up in 2255. After they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and he sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a certain servant girl, remember it was a girl the first time, certain servant girl seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him said, this is the man, or this man was with him too. Okay. Matthew's gospel has the, the three denials coming at the hands of a girl, another girl, and then a bystander. Mark's gospel says the first one was a girl, and the second one was a maid, and then it was by the bystanders. Um, in Luke's gospel, the first one is a girl here. Later on, it's just another, another. And then it's a man, because Peter will say, man, I don't know that man you're talking about. So are they contradicting each other? In fact, John says it's a girl, and then it speaks of they, and then it was a man. So are they contradicting each other? Remember, the courtyard is full of people. All it takes is a servant girl to say, hey, I know you, and someone else to hear them. Yeah, that's him. Give the Gospels the benefit of the doubt. It's not a contradiction when one says man, one says woman. I know those are two different things. The 21st century might not be, but just want to make sure you're awake. But one little girl could say, hey, I know you, which could bleed over to somebody else. She might have told a man, hey, that's him, because the little girl doesn't have a whole lot of power. Some man might have gone over. A whole group of might have gone over. But Peter is being found out now. And in 2256, it's a servant girl. And she said, this man is with him too. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. In verse 58, Luke twenty-two fifty-eight, 58, and later another saw him and said, you are one of them too. Peter said, man, I am not. Imagine what he's thinking. This is the man. This is Jesus. I'm sorry, Peter, who told Jesus, they can all fall away, but not me. They'll all fall away, not me. I don't want to jump on the, against the Peter bandwagon. I'm going to have to spend eternity with Peter. I'm going to see him one day. And I'm, I'm, he's a whipping boy for a lot of preachers, even me in the past, but no longer. I hope I'm mature enough now to think, no, no. Peter's me. I mean, he's just like me. I, or I should say I'm more like him than I care to admit. We, our bark is worse than our bite. I'm not going to say that, but we do. I quoted to you a song this week in one of the commentaries by Keith Green, the late Keith Green, uh, a song called Grace by Which I'm Saved. You know the song? It was redone by Steve Green, uh, which I really enjoy both, but he just surmises. He said, he said and I couldn't pray with you for one hour. I, I, 
as Peter and the, the others couldn't pray with Jesus for one hour, he said, I'll bet I would deny you too. But nothing lasts, Green says. Nothing lasts except the grace of God by which I stand in Jesus. And so at the end of it all, we see Judas has gone away and killed himself by now. Possessed by the devil, betrayed Jesus, realized what he did, was sorry, but only sorry for what he had done, sought no repentance, went off and committed suicide, hung himself from a tree. Peter is now, our Lord is all alone, being questioned in an illegal kangaroo court, all by himself, being beat and spit upon, and his best buddy, one of them's already out hanging from a tree, his best buddy is scared of a little girl and said, no, I don't know him. Woman, I don't know him. Man, I am not. In 59, after about an hour had passed, I wonder what Peter was doing during that hour. Another man began to insist saying, certainly, this man was also with him, for he is Galilean too. And Matthew and Mark, I think it's one of either Matthew or Mark, they recognize his Galilean accent. What's a Galilean doing in the court of the high priest down south in Judea in the middle of the night? I know, you were with him. Hey, weren't you the guy that slung your sword at Malchus and cut off his ear? There's talk going on. Peter can't hide from it. I'm trying to find my place. After about an hour he passed, another man began to insist, and he said, verse 60, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Mark 14, 71, he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you are talking about. Matthew 26, 74, I do not know the man. And immediately a cock crowed. Remember Jesus said before a cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Roosters crowed all throughout the night, then as now. It wasn't necessarily that it was daybreak. And you probably heard them all the time without knowing you're hearing them, the way we hear birds maybe. But on this occasion, he heard it and he remembered exactly what Jesus said. And Luke's the only gospel that tells us this. Luke twenty-two sixty-one. after the cock crowed in verse 60, after he denied, Peter denied him the third time, verse 61, and the Lord turned. We don't know where Jesus is. He's in that courtyard. He's apparently been led out into the courtyard at this point. They've apparently removed the bag from his head while he has spittle hanging all over him and blood and a swollen head and eyes from being beaten. And his best buddy who spoke the loudest Behind Jesus' back is denying he knows him, and it says, and the Lord looked, turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine? If looks could kill, the stare, the guilt that Peter must have felt to turn after the third denial, after hearing the cock crow, after coming to the realization of what I've just done, and turning and seeing Jesus eye to eye. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had told him before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. No, not me, Lord. Everyone else maybe, but not me. Give me a sword. I'll die for you. We love the attitude. Nothing lasts 
except the grace of God by which I stand, not our bravado. Verse 62 says, and he, Peter, went out and he wept bitterly. The men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him. Luke, Luke goes from scene to scene and reverses the scene order. A couple things before we close. These accounts of our Lord and what, what occurred mean something to us today. And if they don't, they must. They must in your life. They're not meant to just be stories you read at Easter. In fact, this year, I'm going to cover the resurrection the week before Easter to get all the CEOs to hear a story they haven't heard. You know, the Christmas Easter only people. We're going to get them to hear something else besides that. Is that okay with you? Well, what, are you what are you going to do, right? I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> But some people just think it's a story. Yeah, I go to church on Christmas and Easter. Yeah, I hear. Yeah, Jesus was resurrected. Yeah, good story. Yeah, I believe it. Why not? I'm a Christian. I'm a Republican, right? I'm a Christian. Must be. So people think. People think that. They do. I'm not making that up. I'm a conservative. Politically, I must be a Christian. I don't believe in abortion. I must be a Christian. That doesn't mean anything. Nothing. To know the story is just the beginning of what we're supposed to do. Knowing the story, the devil knows the story. He was there. The devil is not a Christian. He's a hater of Christ. To know the story and to amen it, yep, I, I adhere to that. No, no. It's about receiving it. It's about believing it. It's about knowing it. It's about living it. Christ, the giver of life, was arrested and killed for our sins. That's why he was arrested and killed. That's why he allowed it, because that's what he came to do. The majority of the world continues to reject Jesus based upon, your outline, the, the false assumptions, the lies they're told, jealousy, a desire to rule, just like the Sanhedrin, just like those Jewish chief priests. False assumptions, what you said here, what you did, lies that people believe. People tell you you can't believe the Bible's written by men. Yeah, you can. You must. Because God wrote it. Gave it. To us. To be written. And was there to make sure what we have is exactly what he wants us to have. Without error. Amen? We take the belief in the Bible, the word of God, above all things. All things. Because we wouldn't even believe in Jesus if we didn't have an accurate Bible. We wouldn't even know about him. How are you going to know about Jesus unless you have an accurate word of God? We don't worship this word. We adhere to this as God's word teaching us all that he wants us to know. Pick it up and read it, my friends. You will never be the same if you do. When you do. We think we know better than Jesus, just like Judas. Judas thought he knew more. People today say, well, I don't believe that in the Bible. Eh, that's, I don't believe that. Think you know more than God? Well, I'm going to sit down with God one day, and I'm going to ask him why he let my dad die early, why he gave me this disease, why that person had to die, why those children suffer. I'm going to sit down, and we're going to have a, a little heart to, heart to God. Got news for you, folks. 
That is not happening. That will never happen. You will never get that. Ever. Job didn't get it, and Job was completely innocent. God said, buck up, young man. I do what I do, deal with it. It's not for negotiation. He is God. The apostle Paul in Romans 9 says, who are you, oh man? You have to put that stress on it because that's what he's saying. Romans 9, 20. Who are you, you piddly, nothing, nobody, made from the dust, creature from the black lagoon? Who are you to question the Almighty? No, you're not getting that for him. It's all God or it's nothing. But we think we know more like Judas. We're angry at life or at God like Annas. How dare he come in and take my money from me and my temple. People are angry at God. I had a young lady asked me at the church the other day. She said, is it wrong to be, to be angry at God, to be mad at God? My answer to her was, it's understandable and it is the worst, ridiculous, absurd sin you will ever commit short of disbelief. Angry at God. Angry at the giver of life. <sighs> Breathing his air. Seeing with eyes he gave. Standing on feet he gave. With lungs he gave. With a brain that he holds together. We would dare be angry at God and give him some kind of silent treatment as we do other people? The most absurd sin you will ever commit next to unbelief. Mad at God? You're the problem, not God. We killed his son. We sin against him and blaspheme it every day. And if we don't do it, we think it. And we have the gall to be angry at God? He took my dad when I was 13 years old. I'm mad at God. Oh, tear your clothes. Wait for your forum. Gene Simmons, the bass player of the rock group, Kiss. Yes, I listened to it. Deal with it. <laughs> Believes that he will sit with God. And his motion on the Dan Rather show, he's, the big interview is saying, what am I going to do with God? He uses his hand. He said, I'm going to sit down right there. I sit down. I've got a few questions for you. Oh, Gene. I'm sorry, brother. You're not going to get that for him. It will never come to that. God will sit us down. And as Gene breathes blood in his concerts, he will ooze it for the rest of his eternal existence in hell, thinking that he has the right to be angry at God for something he thinks is an injustice in this world. Repent, my friends. Angry at God? You're breathing his air. You're living in a body he gave you. You're eating food you had nothing to do with. You're standing on ground you didn't make. Let God be God, you creature from the dirt, as R.C. Sproul calls us. We love money, fame, and possessions. We don't love God. We're proud yet ignorant like Caiaphas. We are overconfident yet fearful like Peter. All of which brings us to our need. If our need, if your need has been exposed today, to be delivered from the wretched human being that you are. And I've got good news for you. The Lord Jesus Christ will receive you. You don't have to pay him any money. You don't even have to get on your knees. You don't have to throw your hands in the air. 
but throw your life before him. God, I am a great sinner, and you are a great forgiver. I give my life to you. And here's the best news you'll ever hear. He will save you. When you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what does Romans 9 say? 10, 9 and 10. You might be saved. You will be saved. Amen, my friends. All of this was necessary for our salvation. Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours. And God the Father on three occasions told God the Son, it's not possible, Son. You must die. You are the only perfect man because you are me. This is the only way You will go before these trials and the kangaroo courts and you will be falsely accused. You will be beat. You will be spit upon. You will be whipped. They will make fun of you. They will strip you buck naked and they will hang you on a cross for at least six hours and you will be tortured and you will bleed to death and you will die of suffocation. That is the wrath of God. God the Father saying, I will pour all of my wrath on you, Jesus my son, for the wretched people out there so that if they believe they can be saved. Let's pray. Father, may may we weep at this good news. You saved us in our wretchedness. We have no, nothing to cling to. We get angry at you. Why? We're still sinners. Remind us of the grace we study through this time of your the passion of our Lord beatings the horrors of death that he had to endure to secure our salvation may it move us may it transform us may we be people beyond just words of what we know and believe may it transform how we live God, fill us. Fill us with the realization of our sin, but even greater, the overwhelming beauty of your forgiveness in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. May God bless you, my friends, as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Walding, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 